Hello and welcome to the Eco Chamber, a podcast on all things environmental policy brought to you by the investigative team of journalists at ENDS Report. I'm James Adjapong Parsons. In this episode, we'll be finding out why staffing levels at the Health and Safety Executive could be compromising the regulation of the UK's most dangerous sites. Why water companies in England are in hot water with Ofwat over poor data. And the latest battles in Dartmoor with Natural England and Sheep. For our deep dive section, we'll be discussing England's sewage scandal with one of the leading campaigners trying to combat the problem, Professor Peter Hammond from Windrush Against Sewage Pollution. To help me break through the green news of environmental policy this week, I'm joined by the ENDS Report's news and features editors Pippa Neal and Tess Colley and reporter Shosha Aidy. First up, it's an ENDS exclusive surrounding the disturbing news that those in charge of regulating some of the UK's most dangerous sites are understaffed. So Pippa, what's the story here? So I've seen some leaked internal figures from within the Health and Safety Executive, which reveals that the number of regulatory inspectors for hazardous installations, which includes chemical and explosive manufacturers and infectious disease units, are down by 27% since 2008. Um, And just for context, this is all in the backdrop of the HSC, like many other government departments, taking strike action over low pay. Since at least 2010, the HSC has experienced significant budget cuts with its 2021 to 22 funding down by 43% compared to 2009 to 2010 in real terms. That's kind of the context of this story. Um, But this division that I'm talking about, it's called the Hazardous Installations Directorate, and it's made up of two separate divisions, the Chemicals, Explosives and Microbiological Hazards Division and the Energy Division. So these are two quite nasty kind of areas that are looking after some of the most dangerous sites. So from chemical manufacturers to oil refining to the manufacture and storage of explosives, they also are responsible for regulating work with biological agents across biotechnology and biomedical research, industrial vaccine and pharmaceutical production. Um, And it also has national inspection and enforcement responsibilities for containment research in commercial laboratories and infectious disease units. So I know that's a bit of a mouthful, but what I'm trying to get across is just how important the work that these people do is. It's kind of regulating and looking after some of the most kind of scary and dangerous sites in the country. So an HSC regulatory officer who works in the ChemHD division and who spoke to me on the condition of anonymity explained that because these sites are permanent, so, you know, there's kind of, generally speaking, a set number of the type of these sites, they've been around for many years and they're not often built like new ones, a decline in the number of staff just means that the workload of inspectors increases. And if there's fewer of them, it means that they can't do everything that's planned. Um, And they explained to me that ultimately by cutting funding, the management is just having to strip back what the staff are doing. And that ultimately means that they're not undertaking the degree of enforcement that they should be. Um, And they said, which I think is quite a telling line, we're not investigating the accidents that we should be. So we're not delivering justice for any victims. Mm. We've covered a lot about the regulators of Natural England EA pay cuts, um, and it's really interesting to hear about HSE. Do we know in real terms the number of inspectors that they have had to the number that they've got now in place? Yeah, so they had 130 inspectors in 2008 and just 95 in 2023. In some ways, that isn't really a surprise though, is it? when it comes to these dangerous sites that you've been reporting on recently, um, what's 
what kind of what have the environment agency been talking about so some of these sites are regulated under the coma regulations which stands for the control of major accident hazards um, and that kind of is a site might fall under the coma regulations because of the amount of hazardous substances it has. So that's what that means. And these sites are regulated by both the HSC and the Environment Agency. Um, and I did a previous investigation which revealed that the Environment Agency itself admits that it's failing to undertake the required um, regulation because of understaffing, kind of resourcing issues and and kind of you know, a whole range of kind of complications with where they're just not able to do their jobs properly. So yeah, in some ways, this isn't a surprise at all. And as I mentioned at, at the beginning, this is all in the backdrop of underfunding of the civil service as a whole, and specifically these these departments. Which ultimately could result in a life or death situation arising. How have other organisations reacted to your scoop? So Janet Newsham, who's a coordinator for Greater Manchester Hazards, which is a non-profit organisation, um, she described this as a catastrophe waiting to happen. And she said, you know, this is just another example of the fact that we're in the middle of a crisis, she says, in terms of regulatory enforcement. And she said, if we're not careful, we are going to see a major accident happen that just shouldn't happen in this country because we do have health and safety legislation in place to prevent this. And what have the health and safety executives said in turn? So they just they told me that Great Britain is one of the safest places in the world to work and that they target their work based on intelligence, focusing on the greatest hazards and sectors with the worst safety records. Um, and they said our data-led inspections are aimed at preventing incidences from happening with investigations and inspectors are only part of what we do to keep people safe. And so they use a range of regulatory tools to improve health and safety, such as influencing industries and providing free, clear and accessible guidance. A very verbose statement to sort of say that all is well here? I guess you could say so. On to our second story, and it's another damning indictment on the water industry over their emerging plans for safeguarding water supply. Offwatt has told almost all of England's 18 water companies that the poor level of detail and accuracy in the data they've presented in their draft water resource management plans was really concerning. These are the plans for 2024, yet to be enacted. But Shosha, can you quickly talk us through what these plans are and why this data is important? Of course. Water resource management plans, or WRMPs, are plans which all water companies are required to prepare sort of every five years and set out how they'll safeguard water supply for customers and also protect and benefit the environment in a long-term way. So the data in question, which are these planning tables, present the supply and demand balance of the plan in a way that off what can then compare across companies as its pre-prescribed format um, and some of the key supporting information for the plan itself rests in here. So the tables are very prescriptive. There's like an 86-page document with instructions for how they're supposed to be laid out. And off what's actually recently published even more for the final plans. So it'll be hard for excuses to be made if, if the plans, um, the tables are wrong again. Um, but yes, they're important because they don't just back up what the water companies are saying, but they hold data off what we use to assess the preferred options and set company targets and determine funding allowances. So an off what spokesperson said that there might be some variance in the data, um, but it's important they have confidence as we go into autumn when companies will be setting out their business plans. So after looking through 
the letters that Offworld sent in response to each company's consultations, I found the most common comment made was that the tables often had missing, incomplete and resubmitted data. Um, I've been looking at the tables which are available publicly, and this is is very clear. Um, Only two water companies out of all of the 18 um, for England and the Welsh suppliers as well, um, didn't get hold of for their tables. And even in some of those critiques, um, issues with data were still brought up. So this is a widespread problem. So some water companies were also brought up on not meeting Offwatt's requirements for their targets for leakage and per capita consumption as well. Um, Offwatt said every company has to try and reduce their leakage by 50% by 2050. Um, that's per 2017-18 levels, and to reduce per capita consumption to 110 litres per head per day by 2050. And this is particularly important, um, as all of the water companies in their plans have expressed concerns about actually meeting um, demand um, in terms of what supply they have, um, particularly with the pressures of climate change and population growth in the next few decades. So at the latest National Drought Group meeting, which is obviously now headed by the interim EA chief, John Curtin, he sort of warned these companies to get their ducks in a row because this is really important as we head into, you know, the summer and more extreme seasons, right? Yes, definitely. Um, There were concerns, I think it was phrased due to sort of these continual shocks and erratic weather patterns caused by the changing climate that we could see the drought conditions return for the second year in a row. Um, And that would be quite a challenge because some areas are still in drought today, for example, in the southwest and east Anglia. But there is still time for water companies to kind of show that they are ready to battle these drought conditions and improve on the plans that they've submitted so far, right? That's true, yes. Um, So a spokesperson for Water UK pointed out that the plans are part of a consultation process, so they're not final. Um, and over the next few months, we should actually be seeing plans, final plans being published. So it, it will be one to keep track of. This recent round of plans is also quite different to the latest, which was published in 2019, because it's the first time the water company will be required to collaborate for new regional water resource plans covering England and that part of Wales. So I think there's five in total. Um, and that will be alongside these company level plans. So there's a lot more um, going into preparing for drought. That is very clear to see. And for our final story, we're talking sheep, Dartmoor, natural England and movies. Over the past few months, tensions have been running high in Dartmoor National Park after Natural England sent letters in February to farmers signed up to environmental stewardship schemes that livestock rates and grazing times would be changing. And they did not take well at all to that. A lot has happened since then with the government stepping in now. Um, But another further development. Tess, what's with the sheep and what's Natural England done now? Well, so now the majority of farmers who graze animals, um, lots of sheep in particular, on Dartmoor's protected sites will no longer uh, be asked to reduce livestock numbers this year. Um, earlier in February this year, Natural England said that, look, if we're going to improve our our um, natural sites, our protected sites, then if you want to renew your, your higher level stewardship schemes, uh, you're going to have to reduce numbers because the grazing um, and associated impacts of animals is is having a bad impact. Right. So the idea is that um, there is a 
problem, particularly with some of our designated sites like SSSI, sites of special scientific interest, where these arrangements to pay public money to protect them are not necessarily yielding the outcomes that Natural England has wanted. Mm. Um, and now now there's a chance to renew them. Natural England saying, well, hey, these plants haven't worked before, so we want to change them. Yeah. And farmers aren't happy at the moment about that. Yeah, exactly. And a big fuss was kicked up. Um, I mean, I think we we uh, reported it here on the Eco Chamber before. Uh, there was a debate in Parliament um, and then the government, DEFRA, agreed to a independent evidence review of the, co- of the, of the condition of these protected sites. Um, and now basically... Um, that has brought in a big kind of freeze, if you like. For the next year, that review is going to be taking place. And while that's happening, pretty much most sheep, most livestock will stay where they are. Um, And then after that, Natural England will be able to, you know, make these agreements um, with with farmers. So what is Natural England proposing at the moment? Uh, So Dave Slater, regional director for the regulator in the southwest, told the BBC last week that after the one-year extension, the regulator will still likely be asking farmers to reduce stocking levels in some areas. Um, In some cases, possibly up to 75%. He was asked, like, is this the number that we're going to see be reduced by? And he he said possibly in some places. So, yeah. Uh, But he said this would happen over a period of time that allows those farmers to adapt and I suppose that's the big difference because in February, Natural England said, you know, you've got to do it in a year. Um, and there wasn't, you know, a lot of farmers kicked out because they thought there was no consultation on this. Um, so now it, if it does still go ahead, um, it will take it will take longer. And for those folks keen to know more about Dartmoor and the health of our national parks, next week we're actually launching our documentary, Wilderness, The Wounding of Our Last Great Wild Spaces where we'll be uncovering the true extent of the public finances that have been poured into some of these most protected spaces of our national parks, including Dartmoor. And we'll be hearing first-hand accounts from watchdog insiders about the constraints that they are facing to deliver for and protect nature. We'll also be putting together a very special episode on that project for the Eco Chamber, so watch this space. So now on to our deep dive section, where I caught up with Peter Hammond, a former professor of computational biology at University College London, turned sewage sleuth. His wastewater modelling published in 2021 was the smoking gun when it came to uncovering the true extent of illegal sewage spills carried out by water companies in England. I began by asking what took him out of retirement and into the murky world of sewage. Well, I'm very fortunate in that I live in a former mill and the river runs under the building and through my garden. So I was able to observe a river for 20 years and for half of that time starting to deteriorate and looking rather unpleasant. And so that drew me into trying to understand why it had deteriorated the way it had. Yes, and and which river is that? That's the River Windrush in uh, West Oxfordshire. Right, yes. And you've done quite a lot of work with the group um, Windrush Against Sewage Pollution, is that correct? That's right. Um, about eight years ago, someone called Ashley Smith moved to the village. The village had only got 30 people in it or something like that. And um, Ashley, having been a, a fisherman, looked at the river and said, it shouldn't be like this. It should be like you know, beautiful. And it had a reputation of being beautiful. And so he said, I'm going to look into it. He started looking into it quizzing the Environment Agency, who pushed him on to looking at 
what the water companies were doing in terms of treating sewage and um, as we found out and, and nobody could believe actually mm. discharging untreated sewage into rivers in, in, in a permitted way permitted by the environment agency Yes, and, and this sort of brings me on to more of your work um, because the Environment Agency does monitor storm overflows. Um, DEFRA said that 91% of storm overflows, um, as per the 2022 data, are now covered by event duration monitors. But, but can you tell me a bit more about this modelling that you carried out and how accurate these devices are and what, what they do? So the modelling that we did uh, culminated in a kind of academic paper in actually in March 2021. 2021 was a big year for the sewage campaign um, across the country. Um, and our paper uh, used what are called machine learning techniques, kind of pattern recognition techniques that you hear about on the radio all the time. But I'd been developing software that looked at children's faces and brains and detected differences in their faces and their brains um, because they had some kind of genetic condition or they'd been exposed to alcohol in the womb and it had affected their development. And I realized that when I looked at the data we were getting from the water companies, that there was a difference in how sewage was treated as it went through a sewage works. The pattern of the, of the flow through it was different when they were spilling, discharging untreated sewage than when they were just treating it in a normal way. And I used the software unchanged to look for those differences. And what we did was to train it on the event duration monitoring data, that where we knew there was definitely a spill. And then we looked historically at the previous 10 years and we discovered a thousand spills that, and that was at just two sewage works and the agency didn't know about them. So it was, it, that work was really about historic spilling. Um, and I think that kind of um, disturbed the water companies because they suddenly yes. realized, oh, somebody can actually find out when we're doing things that we shouldn't be doing. Yes. And, and how does it feel now to see all this attention around this issue that you, you work so hard to raise awareness about? Well, of course, you know, Windrush Against Sewage Pollution is not the only group. There's an Ilkley group. There's um, Surfers Against Sewage have been working on the coast mm. for years. There are, there are plenty of groups. But um, I think, as I said, 2021 was really the, the, where the, the, the switch was flicked in mm. our direction. And then there's been, there's been so much attention. And then, of course, the, you know, the, lots of the newspapers, um, the broadsheets, as well as the red tops, now having campaigns and bringing it to the attention of the public. And, and I suppose the next breakthrough at the moment is that it's become a political topic. Mm. So next year, it will be a voting issue. Definitely. And so that's really what's, again, going to turn the campaign volume up quite considerably. Yes. And, and let's take a moment to talk about politics, if you don't mind. Because I know in um, Labour's sort of water quality bill that they're putting forward, they mentioned something that I, you've talked about already, which is this idea that perhaps automatic fines should be handed out um, when permits are breached. Um, could, could you tell me a bit more about this idea? Well, there are two two, two parts to that. Um, one is that uh, if you're going to find people in, in an automatic fashion, you need to know, you know, in a lot of detail about the crime they've committed. Now, at the moment, um, all the water companies report on is, the, is when they're spilling. And they yes. report to the agency, oh, well, we've spilled for 4,000 hours, this sewage works 45 times or whatever. Um, and... 
I think that's a bit too loose to actually base um, a, you know, a fine on or, or a levy. And what we really need to do is to measure volume. Now, if we know how much this spilling in terms of untreated sewage, then we can have, well, initially a levy, um, that would be just a charge per liter. And then if it's illegal, if it can be proven to be illegal, then it would be a fine. And that way we can be more certain. And I think it would be much more discouraging mm. to the water companies, you know, because it could amount to, I mean, some of the actual discharges are enormous uh, and they could, so it could amount to a lot. Now, the, one of the nearest sewage works to where we are now here in, in Twickenham is Mogden Sewage Works, which is just down the road in Isleworth, I suppose, really, not, not Twickenham. And in 2020, uh, that sewage works spilled more than a billion litres of sewage each day for two days in October wow. 2020. Now, you can imagine if we had a levy on that. So that, I think, is, is, a, is a, a fairer way, a more just way of punishing the water companies. And, and just to be clear, um, how do we know how much in terms of volume that they produced? And, and are all water companies giving us this data? Well, Mogden Sewage Works is almost unique in the sense that um, I've come across very few sewage works where there is a volume meter now in place at the point where the untreated sewage is going into the river or whatever. Um, they, they've got a, a meter on the outfall, but also they publish that data online. Now, I think this was something that um, Hounslow Borough Council forced them to do because there were such big discharges. And so that data is available. So you can go and look and you can see, and it's published, you know, a month in arrears or something. So I know, for example, already this year in four months, it spilled uh, a bigger volume than in the whole of last year. So they're going to, you know, break the record. In 2020, they spilled 6.9 billion litres. Now, again, if imagine if that was a, um, a a pence per litre charge, that could have raised quite a lot of funds. And, and that is why the water companies do not want volumeters. Okay, because you were talking about those big figures earlier, and I'm just going to go back to that point, because um, if we've got our 2022 data, is uh, 300,000 sewage spills recorded with sewage pouring into waterways for almost 1.8 million hours. But what what you're saying is like, what does that mean in terms of volume? Exactly. So we know that some sewage works spill for months on end without stopping, but that could be a trickle. Yeah. And some sewage works like Mogden in a day will spill a billion litres. Now, the question is, if you wanted to know um, what, what effect that's having on the rivers that are receiving that and the animal life and the plant life, um, having a an idea about volume would, would, would give you a, a basis for a scientific analysis. So you could be measuring the quality, the biodiversity, the quality of the, of the river water, the biodiversity, and you could look at the effects of these volumes throughout the year in different locations. And if it was organized properly, you'd soon get a very good idea of how volume is affecting. Um, and there are, there are other issues as well. Water companies, for, for instance, claim, oh, um, it's it's very dilute what's going in the rivers. And my answer as well is, how do you know that? Because you don't mm -hmm. declare the volume. So if we yes, knew the volume, we could test their claims, for example, as well. And and what do we do? What's the next step to, to seeing more companies measuring the volume of sewage going into water? And how, how do they actually, how would they go about measuring this? Well, I mean, that it's already been recommended to do this. So um, you may know about the Environmental um, Audit Committee 
wrote a, a report that um, they generated over sort of 2021 and 2022. In fact, the whole committee came to visit our group on the Windrush during the uh, writing of that uh, that document. And one of their recommendations was that water companies have volume meters, but the government rejected it. They rejected quite a few of their um, recommendations, and that was one that they rejected. So I would like to see that to be reconsidered. And as we're now, as we've just mentioned, you know, we're going through this um, political sensitivity of the issue. There may be an opportunity to re to revisit that. And so basically. Whatever they've got at, at um, Mogden, whatever device they've got for measuring volume, they could reproduce that. Thames could put it in, across all of their um, sewage works in, initially. But then, of course, there are lots of different kinds of overflows. You have them at pumping stations. You have them on the network. They'd be harder technically. But if you can do it at Mogden with that volume, you must be able to do it anywhere. I think that's a really interesting point to make and perhaps it will be the next direction that we go with, with reporting on this sewage problem. And um, I also wanted to talk to you about another issue which is you know a concern that impacts people like you who use this environmental data and journalists who try and find out about what's going on behind the scenes. Um, you know in, in 2015 Fish Legal won a landmark case that secured the public's right to obtain environmental information from privatised water companies under the environmental information legislation. You were able to employ this to great effect when reviewing the scale of the sewage problem. But why do you think this legislation is important? And do you think there is a risk at the moment with, you know, the retained EU law bill um, that it could be repealed? Well, I couldn't have done anything that I have done without that legislation. So I've appealed to that constantly, requesting information, as many other campaigners have, and journalists, of course, do it as well. Um, but there are some problems with do, with using that legislation. I don't know if you know um, how you go about doing it and how it can be abused by the water companies, for example. So what you do is you put in a request for some information. You, you may suspect something illegal is going on at a particular place. You ask for the information and they have 20 days to reply. And what typically happens to me, especially now they know what we can do with the data, is they say, uh, they wait 20 days and they send an email saying, uh, we need another 20 days. And so then we wait another 20 days, which typically is a month because it's working days. And then you get an email that says, oh, we're not going to give you the data. And then what's your option? You have to ask for an internal appeal and they have 40 days to answer that. And then in 40 days, you may get the data. You may have got it the first time after the 20 days, but after this further 40 days, you may get the data. But if they say no, you have to recourse then to the um, the, informa the information information commissioner's office. And um, I get the impression there that there's a waiting list for cases to be seen of as much as six months. So that means you could wait 10 months before you get a decision. Mm. Now, some companies um, are, um, are more cooperative. Thames Water, our local company, have been excellent. They've answered all of the queries. Um, they did once try to charge me, but then they man I managed to stop that happening. Uh, and, and we get the data we ask for. Some other companies are much more what you would call secretive, or they, they use excuses. Now, you may have heard that the Environment Agency started their own investigation at the end of 2021. and the water companies, some of them now use that as an excuse. They say, we can't give you the information because it may prejudice our legal case when we go to court. 
you 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 wanted to know about the REUL uh, activities that are going on at the moment. So um, we were very concerned that um, we might lose that legislation, and 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 as I've just said, that meant that would mean I wouldn't be able to do, carry on doing what I'm doing. Um, now that has abated a little the threat of that. At least, for example, it's been delayed a bit. So I, 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 I'm I'm not so sure whether the threat is as strong as it was. I mean, you may know more than and I do because I haven't been following it so closely just recently. Um, but that would be a disaster if we lose access to that legislation. And just to give our readers a bit of um, context, this is sort of um, early May. The government announced 600 laws that are set to be revoked at the end of this year, um, which is in exchange, I guess, for the sunset clause, which will no longer be happening, which was where all of those EU laws were going to be automatically written off the statute books if they hadn't been repealed or revoked by that point. So what is what is your concern about the retained EU law bill perhaps getting rid of these environmental um, information regulations that, you know, you've noted there are some problems with it, um, but it's great that there's that option as well. Well, if we lose that legislation, then um, I lose access to the information. And with, without the information, I can't uh, prove what's going on. And other campaigners will be in the same position. So the water companies will be able to get away with um, breaching their permits, uh, breaking the law, making more profit by doing that. Yes. And I think, you know, what you've raised today, which is really great is and really interesting is this fact that what we need is more scrutiny on water companies rather than less. We need more data on what water companies are doing rather than less. You know, it's actually what we're trying to do is is increase the data and then we increase the transparency. Is that is that right? Absolutely. Well, I think we've we've chatted about a lot and covered a lot of ground here today. So I want to say thank you so much for coming in to chat to us. And yeah, we'll keep an eye on the sewage problem and, and keep reporting on the data. Thank you for inviting me. That brings us to the end of this week's episode of the Eco Chamber. Thank you to Pippa Neal, Tess Colley, Shosha Aidy and the Pooh Prof. Peter Hammond, who've taught me that hazardous sites are even more of a worry if we don't have the staff to regulate. That the devil will truly be in the detail when it comes to water companies' drought plans. That the woolly problems of Dartmoor are growing. But not to worry, Ends Report has a documentary coming out next week to get to the bottom of it all. And it might be a stinky job, but there's plenty of work for a sewage sleuth detective. And if you're interested in hearing more about any of the stories we've been discussing today, please head over to our website, endsreport.com. For your thoughts, opinions and views about this week's episode, please email us on ecochamber at haymarket.com. This podcast wouldn't be possible without the subscribers of ENDS who make real investigative journalism happen. So why not consider taking out a readership today? In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and maybe even share it with a friend. Until the next time, take care.